It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Identity Crisis, the show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. We're recording today on Wednesday, June 17th, 2020. I'm really excited to be talking to two colleagues who I really respect in the world of Jewish media about the field of Jewish media and news right now. Uh, tempted to spend our time talking about the news itself, but we're going to actually do something that's a little bit more Hartman-like, which is to be a little bit meta, uh, to talk about what it means to cover the news uh, in the Jewish community right now. What is Jewish media all about? Who is it for? How does the changing nature of who Jews are as Americans change what we need out of the Jewish media versus the mainstream media? All those type of fun stuff. I'm joined today by Jody Rudoran, editor-in-chief of The Forward, and by Felissa Kramer, editor-in-chief of JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Still a wire service, technically? Still a wire service um, as part of our portfolio of what we do. Fantastic. And two really thoughtful Jewish thinkers, not just about what's going on in the news, but about the news itself. Let me just start by asking you, in addition to, you know, the the business of running news itself, I'm just curious what your experience has been like running a media outlet from your living room or your basement. Like everyone who's running an organization or a business right now, uh, we've had to pivot into doing the work so differently. But I guess in particular for media, you know, so much of what we commodify is like, the reporter is there on scene, uh, watching and, and observing. And now I guess like all of our reporters are like in their parents' childhood bedroom that they grew up in or in their basement somewhere. So what has that been like just from the perspective of, uh, of running a business? We'll start with you, uh, Felissa. Yeah. Would that I had a basement to go to. I am sitting in the corner of my bedroom right now. So I think that's exactly right. And we've, we started to wrestle with this as reopening has, you know, started to become a thing like we we don't currently have anybody on the ground in new york you know three months ago everybody was in new york or almost everybody was in new york so that has definitely been a change and a struggle and a learn we everybody had to learn how to do the work differently like the upside is that everybody had to learn how to do the work differently the people that our reporters are communicating with have been you know they get it everybody gets it so that's helpful often reporters have to do a lot of explaining about, you know, what their role is and how they're going to engage with the people they're talking to. And I think almost this moment made all of that a little bit more transparent or understandable. So that was nice. Now that there are things to see on the streets of New York or other places, it's a real question, both how do we get people there to, to cover it? And what are, you know, as a newsroom leader, you think about like, how do I keep people safe? So that's a real question too, in a way that, you know, it's always part of the equation, but is it's new now. Jody, I'm curious to hear. We were also in the middle of a move, right? Which, which Well, yeah, I mean, I it didn't ever start. So, right. So that was another piece for JTA, which is, you know, our newsroom has been very newsroom focused. Everybody in the room together. So I have been in the process of moving my family back to New York to do this job. And all of a sudden we've built a remote culture that um, didn't exist before. So that's great for those of us, not just me, who aren't based in New York. We have 
a reporter in Europe. We have somebody in Israel. We have a DC reporter. So we, we have a team that has been distributed. Now everybody's on equal territory, but there's a lot that's also lost in not having a physical newsroom. I, you know, I, I just think about your question, Yehuda. So, I mean, I feel like the, what the, what this, pandemic has kind of done to all the Jewish world and maybe the whole world is to just like get everybody super focused on the essence of who they are and what they do and like strip away a lot of the crap. So there's, there's something really powerful in that. News is, is good for journalists in the sense of it gets us really focused on things that matter. There's a lot to do. This is a moment when people really needed what we do, both in terms of really on, on, on several fronts, like actual news. We did like very serious reporting on how COVID and now how the protests are sort of unfolding in the Jewish community. We also did a lot of service journalism and we also really just opened up sort of as a platform for people to express what they were experiencing and share across both in a kind of uh, hard-edged way in the opinion section and then on our scribe platform of kind of personal essays. You know, I came to the forward in September, left the New York Times, came here to reinvent the place digitally as like an innovator. And this moment, uh, again, not just in media across the world, has been really good for innovation. It's like a moment in which, you know, there's a huge need, there's huge interest in what we're doing and people are super scrappy and we're all like figuring out how to use, you started a podcast. Um, we've been doing, I just got done with doing one of our, uh, Zoom-versation events with thought leaders, and the ability to get people to try new things, which is tough in a legacy organization, has been really sped up by this moment because the mandate for innovation and the ability to innovate is just right there for everybody. I also think that in terms of, uh, Phyllis kind of was talking about this too, there is this interesting way in which, yes, I, I, you know, I am missing you know, street reporting in person. There's a way in which that kind of reporting... Um, is more valuable than any other kind. But since the whole world was actually doing most of the things they were doing in this way, reporting in this way is actually a very organic thing to be doing. Um, so yeah, we are now uh, in the process of, of making some of those same decisions about balancing safety and uh, thereness uh, as well. For me, just as a, and both, both Phil and I are new to our jobs, her, uh, she a little bit newer than me. I had been in my job for about six months when we shut the office. And one of the things I love about this job is the mix of the things I get to do, stuff like this, strategic stuff, meeting with people in the community, public speaking, and, and also running the newsroom. The fact that I had got to strip away a lot of that external stuff and travel and get super focused on the journalism and on running the editorial report was also like a great gift for me as like the second phase of my, my new job because um, I've gotten to know the journalists and the journalism in a much more granular way than I was able to do in the first six months when I was like half the time on the road. Yeah, I, I've noticed actually in our work, uh, you know, I work in a very different type of work than, than both of you do. We're not a journalism organization. We're a, a think tank thought leadership organization. But uh, I was just talking to our whole team about this an hour ago. Our, the whole nature of our work has been premised on traveling around and running classes and giving lectures and so forth. But that's not actually the business that we're in. The business that we're in is in thought leadership. It's in, it's in ideas. And so we basically had the whole vehicle by which we got used to delivering, quote unquote, our content has been stripped away from us. And, and it actually, ironically, puts pressure on you to even be better at your work. Because if you don't have the shortcut of a podium in a nice facility, and it, all you have is like this terrible medium that we're limited to, you got to be much better actually at the core business and the core content. This reminds me of something that my old boss at the New York Times, Dean Baquet, said about innovation which is like become my mantra, which is 
and I think it's such a Jewish concept, so I'm thrilled to talk about it here, which is that you have to, in order to innovate and change, you have to understand the difference between traditions and habits. The idea is that traditions are that core of who you are and what you do, the values you have that you're never going to stray from. And habits are sort of the way you express them at every any given moment. Like, And in the Industrial Revolution, it's different. So in a newspaper, we created this convention of an op-ed being 700 words because that was the length of a broadsheet column. And suddenly that became over generations the idea like that's the best way to argue, make an argument. But like, why? You know, it just was the best way to do it in that space, which was a constraint. Now we have video now we have. So it's like, if you can distinguish what is a tradition that you will not change, then you can open everything else up for everything else up for grabs, the form. And, and the reason I think this is such a great mantra for Jewish journalism and for Hartman too, is like, it's like halacha and minhag, right? Like, I mean, it's like, and you do need to understand the differences between them in order to understand the the synergy between them too. Um, yeah, Felissa, you were having that experience also. I mean, what does it look like for your reporters? I, I guess I'm, I'm curious, especially for the folks who may be newer in their career for this, for this line of work, like what it looks like for them to have to track down a story when they can't actually show up anywhere and, and do that kind of work. I think, I mean, Jody used the word scrappy, and I think that's right. Like, first of all, everybody's sitting at home, and they are lonely, and they want to speak to somebody. So I do think that we, you can find people quite quite easily right now. And But I do think that, you know, one of the things that is important to me as a newsroom leader is like really teach up and coming reporters how to do great reporting. And when you're out in the field, you get to see all kinds of things, and you can describe what you're seeing. And when you don't have that, you have to get into people's heads better. And I think that we've had a lot of pretty good, you know, a lot of important conversations about how do you, how do you create a scene when you can't see anything? What are the kinds of questions you need to ask? What are the kinds of conversations you need to have? I think the reporters are, are learning a little bit about how to interview people in different ways. Um, and it makes the reporter source relationships deeper and more meaningful. So that's something that's always been important in my work with reporters, you know, to what Jody just said about like, Halacha and Minhag, like a lot of times, like Minhag feels like Halacha, right? Like people get confused about that. And I think that totally this is the moment to innovate. And it's, and we've had a lot of fun too. I mean, you, we've started a, an online quiz show that like felt like it was going to be way too big of a thing to get to. And like, you know what, we just, we just did it and it's really fun and we're going to keep doing it for a while. But then there are other things that feel like they are harder to change. And what's valuable in this moment is that, you know, we're all in it together. We can have those conversations, but figuring out exactly, right, what are the things to do totally differently? And what are the things that like, no, we need to approximate what we were doing in this totally different world four months ago. We're really talking about all that all the time. Yeah. So I have a bunch of questions that have surfaced from things that you said, but let's start just with kind of a big one, which is who is Jewish media for? The reason I'm asking this is like, if you had gone back a hundred years when the forward was, you know, what the forward was on the Lower East Side, you would have been able to see that politically Jews inhabit their own universe. They are part of the larger culture, but they have a whole set of organizations and operating systems that are for their community. And so it, obviously you would have, journalism would be a piece of that ecosystem. And I guess the corollary to this is I sometimes wonder in, in and around the world of Jewish media, whether like, does anybody outside of a network of like 400 people care about the conference of presidents of major Jewish organizations but you kind of have to report on it because your highest consumers are the people who are caring about the conference presidents and major Jewish organizations. So I guess I'm just, I'm curious in this whole shift of who Jews are in America and our access to media outlets, when you have Jewishly identified editors in chief of major 
quote unquote non-Jewish publications, if you can say that such a thing about the New York Times or the New Yorker or the New York Review of Books or or the Atlantic, that they're not, not actually Jewish. Like, who is it actually for? Like, what is this industry meant to do? Who is its audience? And as a result, what's its set of responsibilities? I mean, I think in a lot of ways, Jewish media is an antecedent to the current moment, right? Like we, like ethnic media is important. Um, it's important even in a space where you can get news anywhere. It's important because people need to see themselves reflected in the stories that are told. And that's important to people's sense of self. It's important because no organization, no news organization that's setting out to describe the world that doesn't have a particular care about the Jewish world or any other, you know, corner of the world is going to approach the reporting with this kind of in the sustained and uh, nuanced way that our job is to take on. So, I mean, I'm thinking about the coverage that we're all doing right now about Jews of color. I'm sure that there, if there hasn't been, there will soon be from national publications, like one story about, you know, the current moment in America is drawing new attention to Jews of color and shining a light on the, the growing infrastructure to support them and amplify their voices in the Jewish world. And like that, that single story would be important for readers who are not following along, but for readers who are following along and who are interested in what is my community like, they need a higher level of detail and a higher level of illustration. They want to follow a story as it unfolds. So nobody's going to do that if Jewish journalism doesn't, because I wrestle with this, right? Like I'm new to Jewish journalism too, just like Jody. She was six months in when this started. I was six weeks in. I wrestle with, with the question of audience and, and where I land is nobody's going to do it better than, than we can do it for ourselves. And that there's something to be really gained for the story, not just for Jewish readers or cons- news consumers, but for the broader news consumer world from having having stories told by people who deeply care about the communities they're covering. That's something that we're hearing about in the journalism industry more broadly right now. Like, let's make sure that, that our journalists represent the communities that we're covering, that we have diverse newsrooms who uh, understand the nuance and complexities of communities whose stories need to be told. And like Jewish media has been doing that for a really long time. Jody, you also come from non, quote unquote non-Jewish media yeah. from the Times. Um, so what is um, that? Yeah. It's a great question. It's funny. Um, it was a question that I think I was not asked during my interview process at the forward, but it was one of the first questions when I got immediately when my announced my appointment was announced, but many weeks before I took the job, I went to the staff and had like a little Q and A with the editorial team, um, or maybe the whole team. I can't remember. And um, it was one of the questions they asked me, and but they asked it in a way they asked about is it for Jews or for non-Jews or both or whatever, and then I asked it back to all of them in a memo, which got really interesting answers that I should probably go look at now, nine months later. But anyhow, here's what I think now um, that I've done it for five minutes. The forward has always been a really interesting mix of things, you know, really both for uh, the Jewish community, you know, first as this like way that these immigrant uh, immigrant Jews coming from Eastern Europe, like basically learned how to be American um, and then a very strong identity piece for them of their of their Jewish Americanness and of their of their immigrantness. We've been publishing for Father's Day and Mother's Day these stories of readers talking about their parents reading the forward and they're like incredible to hear the role that it played in people's lives. Um, but it also was and someone just texted me a photo of John Kennedy looking at the old Yiddish forward and when I first got appointed a couple of my friends who are not Jews who are journalists and particularly those who are really like steeped in politics talked about that that history of the 
forward as the voice of American Jewry to the world, to the broader American polity. So I think both of those things are, are pretty serious responsibilities to, again, be the host of the American Jewish conversation and also a reflection of that conversation to the broader world. In terms of like within the Jewish community, who are we for? Uh, everyone. And everyone should subscribe. No, but my, my view of this is sort of bi-level. I, I really do believe that we want to take the broadest possible definition of the Jewish community, of who's a Jew, of basically anyone who considers themselves Jewish or Jewish interested. And whatever it is that they define that as, we want to be the thing that helps them be one step closer to that identity, essentially. So that's why we do Yiddish and culture and books and personal essays and spirituality and news and news Jewish organizations and opinion and politics and Israel and all that stuff. And because people have so many food, we're doing a lot more food now that we've hired Rob Eshman. And, you know, there are just so many access points to Judaism today. And we want to be part of that. But yeah, our core audience is also, we need to serve Jewish professionals in a meaningful way and, and be really, uh, you know, we have a 115,000 people, I think, who get our emails every day and um, hopefully read them. <laughs> Many of them read them. And, you know, a lot of those people are like super Jews, you know, they're working for the Jewish world like we are. They're, you know, thinking about Judaism a lot every day. And um, we need to really, that's our core audience. And we need to serve them too. So we're, it's, it's all three of those things. I think it's like every Jew, one step closer, super Jews, really engaged, really serving their needs and really also being like, you know, the accountability arm that they, and the, and the civil discourse platform that they need to sustain democracy in the Jewish organized world. And then also being that reflection of that conversation to the broader world so that when, you know, de Blasio or anybody else wants to understand what's going on in the Jewish world, he can rely on us to tell them. Don't those sometimes feel like they're, at least to me as, a, as an outsider, it, it, it sounds almost like those are competing objectives. One, to create community of people who for whom this is their Judaism is a really different story than being an outside arm that's holding the community accountable. I, I deeply believe when Jewish media has done deep investigative journalism, especially around scandal, that to me is the moment where I'm like, oh my God, this is an invaluable thing. Because more often than not, mainstream media is not going to investigate a financial scandal at Jewish organization X. It's not going to expose a sexual harasser in the context of the Jewish community because the stakes are so small relative to the outside world, even if it's actually highly significant inside. But I, I guess it goes to the question of like passionate attachment. If, if the forward is the place where people are building their Jewish community, Almost by definition, you create a kind of intimacy, an attachment to that, that that inhibits, like the forward shouldn't have a stake in making American Jews feel more Jewish or giving them a sense of community. It should actually kind of be on the outside, kind of agitating. And certainly JTA also, who, right, you're, 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 you know, it's all the news that fits to print or whatever the Jewish equivalent is. It's a, it's an accountability and democracy infrastructure. So and yet I understand that like any Jewish organization right now is building membership and brand loyalty on the basis of like, do people feel attached to it? I wonder where that, how that plays out in programming choices, but also even in editorial choices. When you know you're running something that's going to really, you're not deliberately trying to antagonize people. You're actually trying to hold a community accountable, but you know that it's going to make people like the brand less. How do you, how do you navigate that? Like coming back to me. <laughs> I mean, I think you know, you kind of just said it. Like you really did. You are a Jewish communal leader who believes that the community needs this thing. And that's who we're serving. It's people who get that truth and and quality accountability journalism and quality debate 
is valuable and is not only valuable, it's essential to community building, to democracy, to growth. So, you know, it is different to operate inside a community and outside. Uh, you know, I, I was at the New York Times uh, for most of my career for 21 years. And, you know, it was very, the answer was always, we sit outside this debate. And now I, you know, in both working for a Jewish nonprofit and covering Jewish nonprofits, it's different. And I'm not saying there's not tension, but I don't think there's conflict. Because I do think that that, that community's strength depends on this thing existing and that and not everybody acknowledges it. A lot of people don't want this anymore. A lot of people want to like sit in an echo chamber and hear, you know, what reflects back to them, you know, what, what they put in. And that's great. Like there's a lot of places to do that now. I also, I do think that actually digital, um, I'll just say one more thing and then shut up. But I think there's a way in which digital um, allows us, at least in terms of that broader community, giving people access points to sort of swim in the thing they love. Digital does free you from that tension a little bit in the sense that the food article and the books article and whatever, it's not sitting right on top of the article telling you about the sexual harassment. Like there are, it's, it's distributed medium. So I think, you know, you can experience the forward in a lot of different ways, uh, particularly if you're not in that core, you know, we don't, we don't, it's not, it's not all together in that same way. And I don't, Again, I'm not saying that as like an, a, a way out of the tension you presented in the bigger question, because like I'm still in charge of all of it and I'm still making programming choices and resource choices about all of it. I'm just saying that like if that tension was always there from the reader's perspective, it may be actually a little bit more dissipated. If you're not super engaged with this question of what is the forward and looking at it a lot, you might not really even know about the thing that you're not reading. You know, you're kind of reading whatever you're reading on your phone at that minute. I think people in our community, though, do, like, appreciate the accountability. I mean, you were saying you do, and I think that that's true across our reader group and our potential reader group. And so, you know, I think, Jody, you're saying, you know, someone might choose to consume only food stories and someone else is, like, only coming back when there's an investigation. That might be true, and that might be a reader, you know, reader habits for some people. But I also think that people who care about the strength of the Jewish world, like, can toggle between those and want to. And one thing that we want to get better at is, like, presenting other options when you land on a story so that you can see the breadth of this and know, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting my medicine right now, but like there's some dessert or it's not all dutiful work. Being an engaged, engaged reader of Jewish news isn't a job. It's more than that. So I think I don't feel the tension. I mean, I think it's always a question of resource allocation. We're a really small staff. So would I love to like have more people I could devote to investigations? Like totally. Would I also love to have more people to cover culture and, you know, staff our quiz show? Like, yes. And just to go back to your very first question, more people than 400 want to read about the Conference of Presidents. But the order of magnitude. Particularly when there's a scandal going on yes. there. Yes. But actually, I, I want to say, actually, I should, my favorite thing about this job is I get to say Bakitsur in work environment. So I'll just say that Bakitsur to say like quality and fairness is the answer to your question. Right. When you do accountability journalism, well, people really appreciate it because they get the principle that you started with. They get that we need this and that our community deserves it. And when you do it like kind of sensationalistic and crappy, people like think that you're not part of the community and you're you know not acting responsibly. That's the answer. I mean, it's the answer to almost every question about probably everything, but certainly yeah. journalism is like, you know, quality, fairness. Well, so I want to let's talk about clicks for a second, because that's one of the things that like gets people all worked up that if something is light and fluffy or it is 
you know, not just not investigative journalism, but not even, not just dessert, just empty calories. So you got to run those things because they're part of building a brand and keeping traffic going. And you and I, and Jody, I've talked about this before of like, the clickbaity stuff. And the answer is always like, yeah, of course you got to get clicks. Like we need eyeballs. And I, and I know that this is an accusation that gets thrown out against anyone who's in media right now, which is, oh, that's, you're running that because it's clickbaity. How do you respond to that, I guess? And also how do you reconcile it with the need to like running a digital business, especially you got to get eyeballs on the site and there's no way to run it. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. This question. You're really, no, it's just, you're a really, really smart person. And that question is like kind of uninformed. I'm sorry. I know you're great. Go for it. But it's just, it's like, for, for going there. It's true. I agree with that. So here's the, here's what I want to, first of all, total clicks is not an important metric or it's not the most important metric. It was for like five minutes when it seemed like digital advertising was going to save this industry or be the new backbone of this industry. But it is, Digital advertising is like, which is the thing that is based on total clicks. You know, you get more revenue when you have more clicks. It has become a a tiny fraction of our and everybody's kind of revenue model. So nobody is going to build a successful media brand on total clicks that will last. For me, my, my, the metrics, I mean, we, we pay attention to total users, but the, and then they're way up, by the way, not because we're doing a lot of empty calories, because we're doing a lot of really good stuff people like to read. So there are other metrics that we're really looking at growth in our newsletter audience and our newsletter opens in our repeat users over the week or month, how many stories a person reads at a time. Those are much more important metrics to me. And the, the most important metric of all is being talked about. Um, because I particularly think for a community publication that when your stories are talked about and you ha- that's showing that you are really having impact and building relationships with people. And when people are talking about you, I also think it will lead to the thing we need to sustain, which is philanthropic support, because people will see that people in their communities and circles are, are talking about the thing. I have one more thing I really have to say. I'm sorry. My last job at the New York Times was uh, I ran the audience strategy and uh, so got really steeped in analytics there. And Every single day at the morning news meeting at the New York Times, they do a quick audience report. And the only takeaway from that experience is that quality works. The very things that we were proudest of, the things that we worked the longest on, the narratives, the visual journalism projects, the investigations, the things that were going to be submitted for Pulitzers were at the top of what was getting the users. Millions of page views. People respond to quality. Okay. And it doesn't mean like, look, we have a story from a few years ago that actually Laura Adkins, who now works for Felissa, wrote that says it's called the headline is seven creepy things Trump said about Ivanka. And it is very frequently at the top of our board, but it's not alone there. You know, I mean, we published a piece by Rabbi uh, Sandra Lawson on Friday that, you know, got more than 20,000 page views. I'm thrilled about that. We also published a little news item about Trump, you know, using SS to stand for um, Secret Service instead of USSS as he's supposed to. And that got, you know, almost 200,000 page views. But that's important, too. I mean, it wasn't that's not like. So here's the sharper version of the question. And I I know Felissa wants to come in on this also because you're also running this business. But the sharper version of the question is you you're you're a business that um that is dependent on jewish philanthropy in a significant way and there are well publicized economic and revenue challenges around jewish media that's not a secret that's something that you've spoken about yourself in your own publication you don't want to keep it a secret no um we're watching community jewish newspapers shutting down uh, the one in toronto shut down the one in san francisco is struggling so we know that this is something where it's not obvious 
where the revenue is coming from. And even when you use the terminology of like pieces that people talk about, there are quality pieces that people talk about, the things that really change the world because suddenly it's on the agenda. And then there's the stuff that people talk about that it's not because it's quality, but because it actually just stirs up the pot. Right. So that's where I'm trying to tease at of like, because you're, you, you also can run a Pulitzer story that like people don't want to read that much or talk about because for whatever reason, go, go ahead, Felissa. Right. So I, before I, before I was at JTA for the, for more than a decade before I came here, um, I was a co-founder at Chalkbeat, which is a nonprofit news organization covering public education. And one of the things that we did from the very beginning was define our own success around impact. And we really, and we got way more granular than that. So, you know, we had a whole kind of taxonomy for understanding our impact and tracking it. And in under that framework, you know, people talking about a story is a really good thing and we're proud of it. And people talking about it in a concrete way is better. And that's true, I think, in the world, you know, so there's a rush and it's great. And it gives you an entry point with readers if you are just getting on the radar and starting having them have a conversation, even if that conversation doesn't go anywhere. And I think a lot of pieces do that and that's okay. But then sometimes you're going to break through and give people the tools in the reporting or in the opinion pieces that you run to have a more informed conversation and make different kinds of decisions. Um, I think that's something that national news organizations have a particular opportunity to do by showing what's working in one community in a way that might um, give tools to people in other communities who are dealing with similar challenges to help them solve those. You know, that's that's a vocabulary that's a little bit new. It's, it's innate at this point for me, but it's new in our newsroom and we're talking about it. I think there is like a, a language of clickiness that I had never really heard before because I was so insulated in this nice little chalkbeat impact universe or I'd never I mean I'd heard it I'd never been that's never been part of the conversation about why to do why to make editorial choices you know that's been new to me but I think that like exactly as Jody said like you know you I'm always looking for our most read stories to align with the things we invested most in and I think we're getting closer actually even in the almost six months that I've been at JTA I think and it also you know if that doesn't if that doesn't happen like what's what's holding that back and you know, sometimes it's execution, sometimes it's distribution, and you can learn a lot about your audience by really thinking about that. I, I want to just pick up from there a little bit, Felissa, because it's so important. Like when I was coming up, the only tools we really had to figure out what was going on on our beats was to sort of have coffee every month or so with some smart people or read the trades or get on a listserv of like experts and whatever. And now we have so many ways of understanding what people are interested in. I mean, we can look on Google and see what what kinds of questions people are asking about the topics we're covering. Um, We can see people's response. And and so what we do, what we did at the New York Times, what we do now at The Forward is we look at the stories that don't get traction. And we really think about like, was this a story that's really part of our mission, core to our mission, and we want to expend resources on it no matter whether people read it or not? Yes. Was this a story that was a really good story and had the wrong headline on it or was put out in the wrong at the wrong time of day and didn't or did wasn't framed in a way that people understood or was fitting into the conversation that's already going on that people are looking for answers on if so we could have done it better let's learn from that and get a better headline on it and sometimes we do this in real time this story we know is great is not going anywhere let's change the headline right now and then there's a third category which is like 
this is a boring, dutiful story that nobody really needed us to do. And it's from like 1998. That's what we used to do when we were a different paper. And we look at that and we say, we didn't need to do that. It wasn't worth our time. There's a press release on somebody else's website that says the same thing. It's about respecting the reader. I mean, we have, we have a lot of great thoughts about stories and ideas and whatever. Um, and we have a lot of experience and we want to use those news values and news judgments to make our prioritization and our decisions. But I don't think we want to do that in a vacuum without thinking about what the readers are yearning for and responding to. And I don't, you know, I mean, there's a category of things I'm not going to do. Like, it's not my mandate or it's not my interest. Or whatever. I mean, I'm not going to do a bunch of cat videos. But like, there's a whole range of really high quality journalism that we can do that readers actually need and want and will eat up. And we can find so that. We're going to claim, claim the 10 best cat videos by cats named after famous rabbis. Exactly. In history. So that's just, we're going to grab that traffic. Well, we'll, just, we'll just republish it. And, went right after <laughs> you, and, you, and you purchase the right to republish it. So there I, you go. I have a name for you. It's cats. Um, listen, uh, <laughs> all right, what's the big invest, investigative journalism is obviously the most expensive and complicated piece of this work. What's the big stories that budget freeing you wish you could have a reporter spend six months on you want us to give you our like <laughs> answer that question i mean i think any any institute particularly this moment every organization is making decisions about their resources and how are they going to spend their money and those decisions you know aren't simple and if you scratch beneath the surface you can find probably an interesting story about anybody so you know no we're not gonna, <laughs> we're not gonna share the stories but i i think you know the like scrutiny could be applied anywhere. And one thing that's great about having a dedicated reader base, I'm sure that this is the case at the forward too, is that, you know, we have folks coming to us and saying like, here's a question I've got. I, this doesn't feel from where I'm sitting, like it makes sense. Can you help me understand it? And in an ideal world where there are no resource constraints, like we would follow up on every single one of those questions because that's really like the work to honor readers and, and hold our community accountable and we do have to make choices you know which maybe we should put out ideas to like try to get funding for them i don't know i mean i think phyllis is right about the funding choices people are making now i think a historic a really detailed analysis of where jewish philanthropic funds have gone over the years and how it's shifted and how it's changing would be interesting i think you know there's this strong push out right the second about uh, diversity on the staffs and boards of Jewish organizations. So really looking at that um, in a close way about what exists and what might be possible would be very interesting and could use some data analysis. And um, I think that before COVID happened, I was really focused on a couple of projects around anti-Semitism. Um, there's, uh, you know, a lot that we could do on tracing anti-Semitism on the internet uh, with some extra resources We'll have to put a pin in this one for a little bit, but, you know, there's a lot of confusion, I think, in the Jewish world about exactly what's happening on college campuses, and I think it would be very interesting to really invest surveys and polls, uh, reporting on campuses to really, there, there was a very good study done about five years ago, but I mean, to really get granular about the pro-Israel, anti-Israel activity on every campus and to sort of document it in a kind of a quantitative way with also a lot of narrative around it, I think could be really compelling because I think people are really struggling across generations to understand how that how that debate has changed, or at least they were pre-COVID. There's some real investigation to do around COVID and what exactly happened in different Jewish communities around that um, and how race and poverty and neighborhood density in New York all played uh, into uh, infection and death rates 
Here's another big one that I, I don't know that it's your job to cover or whether it's, you know, somebody else in the, in the Jewish nonprofit kind of field has to look at this, but I've been fascinated for a couple of years now by the influence economy in Jewish life. How do ideas move around the Jewish community? Um, how do I de- like, who are the actual influencers who are actually capable of shifting capital? Um, and the question of publications is a piece of that. Uh, I think any writer or thinker right now, there's no map of like, uh, well, where do I want to publish this? Do I want to publish this in JTA or the forward or tablet or medium? I, I think about this myself as a writer and I've talked to reporters on both of your teams about this of like, wait, why did you publish this? Why did you write this on Facebook instead of writing it there? And like, I, I got my own calculations, but there's a bigger study here because there's an enormous amount of money moving around an incoherent system. And COVID is going to change a lot of this because because it's it's actually entrenching certain organizations that have the financial health to get entrenched and it's eviscerating all sorts of other organizations. That whole in- influence economy seems fascinating. This is a good this is a good example though also of the other question because you you know you you, you veered a little towards the the established organizations but the whole question of influencers, right? Like we could all this could also be a very personality and and so we could hire right now somebody to diagram the influence map on of like Jewish Twitter, Jewish Facebook, and those media organizations. That skill exists in the journalism world. It's just, we just have to, we don't have it on our staff. And I don't think that Felicia does either. And I don't think any Jewish organization does, but we could do that story probably in three months. Um, because, we, you know, I've seen that story. I mean, you, you saw the New York Times did an amazing story about the whole architecture of Trump's retweets. It's, you're, you're talking about that kind of investigation. You know, the technology exists to do that kind of reporting, and it would be really important. And if anybody wants to give me the money, I will hire that person to do that story. The story behind that story and the, and the kind of the, the big picture, the biggest service I think that Jewish journalism can do right now is create a true picture of the world that we just left behind because it's about to be rebuilt and without a true understanding of what is being rebuilt, it could be rebuilt in ways that are not healthy or unhelpful. And I think there's a temptation to say, okay, well, like that's in the past, like whatever, you know, that whatever that thing was that we were thinking about investigating six months ago, like doesn't exist. But I think that it's still helpful in illuminating the world so that all the many, many decisions that are going to have to be made in the coming years about how to rebuild it can be done, you know, with the most possible information, as possible information. For decades, Jewish leaders from across North America have traveled to Mechon Hartman in Israel to learn alongside inspiring faculty and meet old and new friends in the warmth of the Jerusalem summer. This year, we won't be able to gather in Jerusalem, but we can still gather. And this summer, we are opening the doors of our Bet Midrash and inviting everyone inside. All Together Now, Jewish Ideas for This Moment is a month-long virtual celebration of ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Join hundreds of Jewish leaders online between June 29th and July 23rd as over 50 of our scholars from Israel and North America address the moral and theological questions facing us in this moment. For more information and to register free of charge, go to bit.ly slash Hartman Summer. Well, there's a lot of things I want to keep talking to you about, but let me ask you one last big, enormous question, um, because it's kind of the elephant in the room. There's something obviously changing in public culture around acceptable ideas, unacceptable ideas, acceptable um, acceptable voices in communicating ideas and non-acceptable voices where there's, it's just, it's very big. I, you know, just at, anecdotally, I sit on a couple of like Jewish uh, fellowship listservs and the tone has totally changed 
of like either we are in support of Black Lives Matter or this whole this whole industry is corrupt. And that's just one example. Or annexation is starting to emerge as another one of these kind of dividing lines. Either you are for annexation or you're against annexation and, and then you're morally compromised one way or the other. Jewish media has a weird place in all of this, but you are all subject to it of people deciding if it comes out of this publication or it comes out of that publication, it's now corrupt. I can't, I can't engage with it and talk about it. And obviously the Tom Cotton case is kind of, kind of looms large of a decision by a newspaper to publish a piece by a standing U.S. Senator <laughs> results in like the biggest day of cancellations in New York Times uh, history. So I guess I'm just curious. There's a simplistic version of this question. I, I know that neither of you want to engage that, but like, just give us some sense of how you're thinking about what it means to be a major player in media right now in response to a moment like this. What are your moral responsibilities in terms of being curators of as wide a conversation as possible? How do you see yourself in relationship to this evolving trend that, that is really seems to be changing the marketplace of ideas? I mean, for all of the challenges that accompany that, I will say that our conversations are sharper and better and our stories are, our sourcing is more representative and we are pushing ourselves harder and we already were, you know, we were before a month ago and we're, we're doing it better now. So I think that there's a fear or like, you know, some of this conversation comes with sharp edges that don't feel good. And I agree. I would like all conversations to feel productive and and constructive but I think they really, I think they are. So I, I, I mean, I'm an, I'm an optimist, I guess. Um, and I am really feeling the upside of what could be a hard conversation. Does that mean that there aren't like lots of challenges all the time or lot, or fear even in our newsroom that we're going to make a misstep? Like that's, of course, we're nervous about that, but I think that we're in a moment where we can really like, people are willing to help us, right? We can ask questions and um, get guidance from people who want to see, uh, news change, want to see journalism change, may have a different idea of what constitutes journalism from mine. But I think that that's okay. And I think we can get better as journalists because of that. And I can share what I would do with the cotton op-ed because for me, that's really cut and dry. And I think it does tell us what to do with our opinion section, which is to amplify voices that don't have amplification. I think that that's the value that we have. That's certainly at, at Chalkbeat, we call the opinion first person. And we really stuck to that. And I think that that is the value that any newsroom really brings, that people have platforms and what newsrooms can do is amplify people whose platforms are really small, but who merit a larger stage. So by that framework alone, that wouldn't have been my thing. So as I think about your question, you I'm reminded of the conference that we were at together, I think in January in LA, um, it was about Zionism and, and you were on a panel where someone else talked about the big tent they were trying to create to talk about Zionism. And then the next thing they said, and you pointed this out to them was they started to talk about who, where the boundary was of the tent. And you said that you thought that, that if you want a big tent, probably the first thing you should talk about is like, what's going to happen in the tent and not who's going to be in or out. And I really, I thought that was really, really smart. I believe I asked you to write a piece about it for the forward and you have not yet done that. So you're over deadline, but anyway. Um, other things have come up. Just like that. <laughs> that is true. I will accept that. But for me, I mean, I am not interested in defining people out of the debate, uh, particularly not based on what their ideas are. I'm, I'm interested in, trying to have the broadest possible debate we can on terms that are both about respect, respectfulness, empathy, and quality. Good, fresh, original thinking and argument. 
Uh, it goes without question. Uh, what Felicia said, I think, you know, the amplification of, of underrepresented voices is a key responsibility of the opinion section and of, of the news coverage as well. And I mean, I, you know, we are doing that every single day at the forward. Um, and by the way, the New York Times was doing it even in the moment they were publishing Tom Cotton. And I think there's a lot of things we could all improve in terms of contextualizing opinion pieces. I mean, I think the New York Times was working on that. We've all been working on it, but there's more to do. But for me, um, I think there's a lot, there are increasing spaces in which people talk to people who are just like them and think just like them, and they never hear in any kind of respectful, well-argued way the opposing point of view. Um, this was endemic in my experience when I was the Jerusalem bureau chief of the New York Times. I was, after years of working as a journalist, I'd never seen a situation in which either the discussion was so uh, polarized and didn't have axiomatic facts, and also where the activists were so focused on undermining journalists in order to prevent this kind of uh, engagement. And then I came back to the United States on January 2nd, 2016, and that disease that was corrupting coverage of the of the conflict has now infected our whole polity and for me you know i i i think that the the danger of dangerous ideas only being discussed in dark corners of the internet uh, or scary ideas or provocative ideas um is that that's a, to me that's a bigger danger to our democracy than a responsible publication having to sort of vet and wrestle with those ideas make sure they meet some kind of quality standard in terms of argument and expression and empathy for the opposing view, and then engage readers in confronting those ideas. I think that principle, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not trying to say like everyone has to agree with that. That's my thing. And that's the forwards thing. And that's what we're going to do. I do believe that that is kind of more important for democracy than the idea of saying like this thing that many people think is not even worthy of, of investigation or consideration. Um, I know that there's a more nuanced argument around cotton and about platform, you know, I get it. I don't think that publishing that op-ed made it any more or less likely that um, military troops would be sent in, you know, so I don't, I don't think that that, anyway, I think a lot of the argument that has grown up around that is really specious in terms of what, what the actual fundamental core is. But in any case, for me, uh, it's about, doing the best we can to host uh, civil discourse on the exact issues that divide us and that are most difficult to talk about. Um, and it's, it's not easy to create a platform where different people will both see their own experience reflected and be really challenged and really brought to other people's experiences. But that's a value that we can provide that a lot of other places can't. Um, including like, you know, neighborhoods and, and schools sometimes can't do that because they don't have that ability to open the tent in the way that you talked about Yehuda. Yeah. And this, we could say a lot more on this. I wrote a piece for JTA. What was it last week that responded to an opinion piece in the forward so we're, and all these questions of like, what does it mean to simultaneously be committed to democracy and pluralism and also be aware that those, all of those values are under attack and therefore to shore them up is not always to respond by more openness, but to actually create some boundaries. All of that I think is, is fun and fair play. And there are many more things I'd love to talk to you about, but we are out of time and I'm really grateful to both of you. And I'll just say to our listeners that 
you know, the folks working in, in Jewish media and, and Felissa and Jody are, are two of the major leaders in that field are really doing um, indispensable and underappreciated work in the Jewish community. They are just an industry that the Jewish community desperately needs and, and undervalues. So pay attention to them, listen to them and support them to whatever way you can. Um, to our listeners, thanks for listening. Special thanks to Jody Rudoran and Felissa Kramer for being with us this week. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by Devin C. Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music provided by so-called. In addition to the podcast, recordings of Identity Crisis are streamed on Facebook through Jewish Live. Uh, you can check our Facebook page for details about future recording times. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week, and thanks for listening.